I love talking to people and I probably will talk quite a lot. So please do feel that at any point you can go, hey, what about blah? Or you don't even have to put your hand up, you're not school. Just shout out, just contribute, Let you know, if you would like to contribute, you don't have to save it for the kind of question slot at the end. You can if you like, but otherwise just feel free to chip on in. Um, something I should say at the start is that this presentation isn't about making videos. Um, it's not really going to be about the use of video at all. What it's going to be more about is how it feels to get involved in designing learning when you're not an academic and the kind of negotiations and conversations that I have had in my university around becoming involved in designing learning. So here is a, a fortuitous picture of my library. That's my library building there under the shadows, but at the foot of the rainbow where the pot of gold is. I am seen and known at UEA as an academic librarian, and that is seen as being a very good thing. It's recognised that I have a certain level of expertise, and it's recognised that that area in which I have expertise is complementary and broadly useful to the kind of pursuit of academia. But nobody really knows what that is. It's really hard to define what my area of expertise is. I tend not to use the words information literacy, even to myself, because it comes now with a whole load of baggage for me, different kind of viewpoints and assumptions and nuances. So I tend to call myself a teaching librarian. Um, then it's kind of up to me and whoever I'm talking to, to negotiate our way to finding out what I mean by that. The reason why I think it's so difficult for all of us to pin down what I do, partly comes back to something that Ursula Wingate pointed up um, years ago. And it's what we ask our students to do when they come into higher education. So we, the visible part of this is we expect them to acquire subject knowledge. So we want them to come along and find out about, if you're a biologist, how is biological knowledge constructed? How is it communicated? How is it questioned? How is it passed on in the field? But alongside the subject content, there's everything that we, I'm saying we because I'm assuming we're all doing this, there's this less tangible, less visible stuff about learning to learn that we are all somehow involved in supporting. This is the bit that's hard to define because it differs in different disciplinary contexts. Sometimes colleagues don't actually see this bit at all because they are aware of this bit. They are so focused on subject knowledge and the challenges of communicating all of the body of subject content that needs to come across to a student for them to qualify as a biologist or a philosopher or a historian or a nurse. That this kind of constructed identity down here, who I am as a learner and how that gets supported, becomes much more nebulous and sometimes invisible. But I have to add, and librarians, I hope you're not going to start throwing things at me, I don't think my profession is good at defining this area either. So I said a moment ago I tend not to use the phrase information literacy even to my colleagues, to myself because it is a very stretchy term that's capable of having all sorts of nuances and assumptions placed inside it. And some of those assumptions can be very intensely normative. Others are much more kind of about a negotiated, constructed idea of what you're doing as a learner. So some librarians will think in terms of using the library. Information literacy has a lot to do with using the library understanding what the most appropriate source, the best quality source is for academic work. 
I tend to think more in terms of constructing knowledge and appropriacy of source becomes different when you look in terms of constructing knowledge. When you look further at what it looks like to engage in academic practice, sources become only part of the picture. When you start thinking about supporting learners in using and critiquing and synthesizing and communicating information within a discipline-based community of practice where there are certain ways of doing that, it becomes extremely sort of I won't say contested, because librarians don't contest. That sounds like a mud fight. But there's potential for a lot of really interesting conversation around who we are, what we do, and what we contribute. So a study that I've talked about with a couple of people here already is actually um, Wheeler 2016, I think. And it's a phenomenographic analysis based on semi-structured interviews with a group of librarians, all of whom are information literacy librarians. How do they see themselves with regard to teaching? So do they call themselves teachers? Very, very, very few prepared to do that. Some of them will go so far as to say, I'm a librarian who teaches. Some will say, um, I'm a librarian who gives training. But a lot of them will talk about their practice in the terms of training and of themselves as trainers, not teachers. So there are some quite big, fuzzy questions about role legitimacy. The roles that we adopt as academic librarians in relation to learning and what we can do for it. There's also how we're perceived by the community and the sorts of expectations that we can encounter. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean expectations of, of sort of, oh, you know, you should be over there doing something else. I want people to come to my library and say, talk to my class about something, work with me on something. I expect that you will contribute something to my module. I want to work in terms of those expectations around supporting learners, because I think those are the useful conversations. But it means that I think academics find it hard to tell me that they expect things of me, because quite often my academic colleagues will say to me and other librarians, but you're so busy, we don't want to take you away from the library. Ah, there's some smiling going on. Yes, this is, this is recognisable. I think we should all start expecting more of one another and being clear about those expectations and using them as the basis of a dialogue. What can you do for my students? Yeah? How about we disagree that now? That would be good. So there's expectations around what I, from inside this building, could do for learners. There's also some expectations around what I should be contributing to student learning. What kind of input academic colleagues could ask of me and how much they could ask of me. And this is where the profession's fuzziness can make it really difficult because academic colleagues do not know whether they will stand me up in front of a class and I will say, we have these amazing subscription resources and you should really use these because they're so much better than Google. Or whether I'm going to start saying, I want to talk about how knowledge is constructed and communicated in your discipline. Or whether I'm going to go the whole Leven Wenger and sort of go, what does it feel like and what does it look like to think like a biologist, think like a historian, think like a philosopher? What does it look like when your lecturer does it and embodies that expertise and what does it look like when you do it? Yeah? My colleagues have no idea where on that kind of spectrum of information literacy nurse I'm going to come in. I'm going to be the whole Leighton Wenger, by the way, you can probably work that one out. But when they ask an academic librarian to come and talk to their class, it could be any of those things. So these are the kinds of questions <coughs> that came to the fore when I got involved in designing a course about a two years ago now called Digital Voyager. We were asked to provide a programme of digital literacy training for all students at UEA. 
This was the remit that came from my, my uber boss, as it were, who is the head of the Information Services Directorate, which is a converged service with the library and IT together. Yes. Um, that is probably why this is framed in the way that it is. <clears throat> I like to talk about digital literacies plural, um, not just because I'm a social scientist, because I think it actually does communicate an interesting message from the start, and it does something to change those expectations again. I tend to steer away from the word training, unless I'm actually telling someone how to do something, then it's entirely legitimate. My kind of information literacy is not about telling people what to do or how to do it, so I tend to leave out the word training and move away from it. As we developed the project, so the programme itself does exist, but it came at the end of a year-long project, partly because we needed to scope out what at UVA digital literacy or digital literacies might look like and what might work for our students. So we were the first people involved in doing anything DL-based at UEA, which is awesome because it kind of gave us the chance to own the agenda a little bit about what digital literacies are, what they look like, and what they're not. <coughs> but we also had to contend with discourse like the point of this programme is to embed digital excellence in the UEA graduate identity. <coughs> yes, so I can see some more smiling going on. There is a very different kind of discourse at work here. This is a different set of stakeholders with a different set of things that they want out of this programme from where I might be coming from with my kind of, you know, philosophical, educationless, Leibniz-Wenger stuff. But these are the people who are pushing the programme. These are the people giving me the space in which to operate. So whatever we designed had to hit this target as well as whatever pedagogic kind of goals I might have in mind. So. It's all very interesting, particularly when I had a word with the head of Information Services Directorate, who had been largely responsible for pushing this idea my way. And he said, what we need is something like the European Computer Driving Licence. <laughs> so those of you who don't remember the ECDL, it's a very, very nice package that teaches you software training. It teaches you how to use things like Office and things like Word and it teaches you how to do clever stuff in Excel. It is IT training, IT skills. And I was like, so you know when you said digital literacy, I was kind of thinking more this, right? This is Gillen and Martin, an extremely accessible report for, for it's not JISC, is it? Was it the uh, HEA? It was TLRP. TLRP. TLRP, yeah, yeah. Which I think is part of the HEA. Am I going mad? It's a short report. It's very, very... It was a particular funders. Yes. It's it's an outstanding piece of work in terms of setting the scene for digital literacies as something that is not IT skills training. Okay? So there's a fundamental, very, very different approach. If you're talking about skills training, there's a sort of convergent takeaway. I want you to feel comfortable using a tool to an accepted standard, and that is an external standard that you as a learner and I as a teacher have agreed on. We may not say it in as many words, but by taking the assessment and attaining the qualification, we've made a social contract that there is a sort of externally verifiable capacity that I can measure that you can perform. It doesn't have a lot to do with the constantly changing practices through which people make traceable meanings happening to use digital technologies. So we're looking at a kind of two very different ways of looking at modelling digital literacies which have implications for what on earth would go into this course 
and how we sort of bring this together. So I spent a lot of time basically talking to everybody I could find, colleagues, um, learning and teaching day, uh, information <coughs> services directorate, employability executive. If there was a body out there that had a meeting, there'd be Emma there going, hey, let me talk to you about digital literacies. Because I really wanted to try and get across that we cannot just afford to focus on sort of IT skills access stuff. So if you haven't come across this diagram before, this is Beatum and Sharp's um, work as part of their general kind of learning literacies project from about 2008-9. And they did a lot of work around communicating the fact that overall learning literacies, which includes digital and information literacies, academic literacies, are on a kind of spectrum where the most visible ones are going to be about can you write an essay? Can you turn on a computer? Can you find a source? But because they're the most visible, we mustn't let them get in the way of the more complex, more fuzzy stuff up here, where you're doing your kind of digital access and skills within a community of practice that has its own idea of what is good, that rewards you for certain behaviors, certain performances, and certain values, okay? So the whole kind of thinking like a biologist thing is not situated down here. It's situated up here. How do you think like a student of biology? How do you then move into thinking like a biologist? It's up here in the attributes, identities, and the situated practice, the sharp end of the triangle. So I did quite a lot of work saying digital literacies are not software training. Digital literacies are not skills-based solely. They are not a set curriculum or a set body of knowledge that we can draw a line around and sort of hand to people in a package. And they're not assessable using right-wrong quantitative measures. Okay? You cannot assess performance of identity within a community of practice using kind of multiple choice questionnaires. What they are are a loose set of practices and values enacted at individual level with the emphasis on the individual's choice of what to deploy in which situation or context. Okay. They're negotiated because they're social. They're part of a community. How you behave on Yammer or Slack or any other workplace digital communications tool, very different to how you might behave on 4chan, if anyone remembers 4chan. Oh, oh dear me. Um, an anonymous forum where you can say whatever the heck you like. Sort of precursor of Reddit, if anyone's on Reddit. The space where you can don an identity that no one can question you on or call you on. And it's amazing what comes out. In a similar sort of way, trying to draw a line between the two. This is a very useful quote that I pushed at people a lot as well. If at the skills level we're talking about enabling people to find and access information, notch it up a little bit conceptually. <coughs> information and digital literacies enable them to make critical judgments and use the information they find appropriately. Another use of the word appropriately, which is very, very social this time. Appropriate in the sense of what will this community warrant to be good? How will, I, how will it reward me for my behaviours? And another example that I used when I was trying to explain the difference was, you know, IT skills will let you join an online forum. IT skills let you turn on the computer, access a browser, search for a forum where people love talking about trains, and let you post to that forum. What IT skills cannot do is allow you to understand the behaviour of trolls and to know when not to feed the trolls. Yeah. So, we managed to come up with some programme principles 
We're still working through a year of project here, a year of kind of development and background, and we haven't at this stage even got to the point of thinking how long is the course going to be, what goes in it. Because it was so important to try and get what I think, I thought it was so important, to try and get the agenda out that not to allow any future slippage of digital literacies into a sort of, oh, well, given the ECDL. Let's put that line down right now. I'm not saying that there isn't a case to be made for IT skills training. There certainly is. But let's recognise it properly and support it properly in a form that's appropriate for training. And let's recognise how it differs from this kind of complex modelled identity performance stuff. We managed to articulate these principles I think this was actually quite a brave thing for a library to do in certain circumstances. Well, we said it's, it's a bit more complicated than that, effectively. We were able to do this partly because we had an academic champion who licensed us to be this bold. As part of the project board, we had an academic champion and they said, yeah, this is fine, this is good. Keep going with this, keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, make sure that what you assess is that the participants aren't just consuming digital stuff like they're not just kind of reading blog posts that happen to be on a digital platform instead of happen to be on a piece of text. Make sure that they're actively engaged in being digital themselves. So they are <coughs> producers, not just consumers, they're participants. With all that that entails about appropriacy and platform choice and everything else like that. Right? So we did very much come in on the whole, this is not going to be a telling communication. This is not a sort of, we're going to wrap up good practice and go, here's a little checklist. We're going to leave it up to you to tell us what appropriate looks like in different contexts. And we did have a few people kind of going, oh God, how's this going to look? What's going to happen? Um, it, was, it was absolutely fine, by the way, perfectly fine. But an interesting point is that the same academic champion who licensed us as, from the library to come out with these quite bold statements did warn us after the project had finished, careful you don't show academic staff and what they do on Blackboard. Don't make it too good. Because you don't want to tread on any toes and you don't want the library to lose that nice fluffy image that you have at the moment. So, that gives you a kind of flavour of how we have to negotiate our perception or other people's perception of us strategically. And in one way, it's very easy for me because I'm not involved in collection management. I'm not involved in supporting teaching in the sense of buying materials or telling students about materials. I am wholly to do with teaching and learning as information skills librarian. But that makes it difficult for me sometimes to have conversations where I need to be mindful of how the library has to position itself as an academic support department. And it taught me a lot about negotiating. So a little bit about what is actually in this course that I've been talking about so much. I mean, it's not going to rock your world, so kind of step down your expectations immediately, because really it's the kind of conversations I had that I wanted to talk about. But this is a standard MOOC-style approach. It was a course that happened over four weeks. We had timed release of the content so that in week one you could only see what was in week one in Digital Voyager. And you could come and go, as you please, like a MOOC, do a little bit, go away, come back. It would take about an hour. <coughs> to work through what was in Unit 1. Actually, in practice, it took about 20 minutes. But we wanted to give a little bit of leeway <coughs> so that participants weren't kind of misled in terms of the timing, really, and sort of thinking, well, this is going to take me my whole week when I've got my academic stuff to do as well. And I've done a little breakdown of 
what was in each of the four weeks of the course? Um, just to give you some background about the kind of content that was in it and how we framed it. So week one was basically, uh, what digital animal are you? So not just sea creatures this time, but this is out there on um, Quizzer, I think. So you could, if you wanted to, you can search for this and have a go um, and see what animal you are. So you might be an eagle, you never know. Um, this was a very throwaway, icebreakery kind of thing, which is not at all serious. And it even says in the page, this is really not at all serious. The point of doing the quiz was to help people introduce themselves, get a little bit of talking going, point up that there are lots of different ways of interacting with digitalness and that none of them is wrong. Okay? So there was a range of outcomes from the quiz that went from, you know, you might be very kind of high-flying with technology like an eagle, you might not use digital technology very much. Maybe this is because you're quite sceptical. Okay? So that was an owl. Little chunk there, so each of these bullet points is a page on Blackboard. So you page through um, short snippets of content, packaged to be as small as possible, as consumable as possible. Bit of discussion and activity around online identity, the idea of digital footprint and shadow and a Google search for yourself. And the reflective task for this week was actually, you know, what do you look like on Google versus what do you look like on DuckDuckGo? So the website that tracks you, what is it presenting to you about yourself? The website that doesn't track you, what do you look like there? You know, are you as visible as you want to be? Anything dodgy coming up? I had to put in a section about what to do if you found terrible stuff about yourself. <laughs> that was a non-negotiable. I had to put in some tips and kind of clean-up strategies for tidying up your profile of all those drunk pictures. Everyone's always worried about drunk pictures. I mean, you know, all of the staff are worried about drunk pictures. We're always going, oh God, students don't put drunk pictures online. There's nothing but drunk pictures online. There's a video of me at a conference from some years ago, seriously. <laughs> so we had to put that in as a kind of, it's okay, we've got your back. <coughs> but the rest of it was pretty much sort of students, what do you look like? How do you feel about that? Are you, are you enjoying being this visible or not visible? What do you want to do? What's appropriate for you and why? There was more content in weeks two and three, and they focused on the kind of academic digitalness and employable digitalness, um, if you like. So again, each of these was a page and they were kind of worked in clusters. So we talked about the tools that people use when they learn, and that included analog tools. So I wanted to make sure I was not privileging the digital because it was digital. Um, again, sort of, we asked students to create a, di a diary using Coggle or Trello of what kind of software they used over the course of two weeks. A little bit of stuff in here about Wikipedia, um, uh, quite a lot of stuff from visitors and residents in there about whether it's black market learning, whether it's got a function in learning. Again, a sort of, you know, do your lecturers say, yeah, check it out on Wikipedia? Have you been specifically told not to use Wikipedia? What is your experience and what do you think of that? If you've been told you must never use Wikipedia because it's the equivalent of learning history by reading the sun, how do you feel about that as part of your academic discourse? You know, everybody uses Wikipedia. It's just that some of us are told to say we don't. This was another bit that was kind of mandated because part of this, um, part of what I was told had to go into the digital university was you must do copyright. So I tried to make it, tried to flip it because the message that they wanted me to put in was for God's sake, stop ripping things off the internet, really. Um, and I tried to flip it to thinking about when you produce something 
why you might want to apply Creative Commons licensing, um, when you might want to use you know, sources for finding stuff that you can reuse safely, that kind of standard stuff. Week three, um, we actually had somebody on the course participating on the discussion boards and stuff from the Career Centre, which is really nice. But it made it more of a negotiated content. So week three is the one where the do it like this discourse comes closest to the surface, if you like. So week three has got quite a lot of stuff about how good your digital skills are already, about what your digital reputation can do or not do to affect your employability chances in future, um, about how to present yourself online, balancing that personal and professional um, again, and something about your personal brand. Okay, so a lot of this content came over from from the careers unit, um, and I was again put in a situation where that there was a lot of stuff they wanted their students to know and do and be without negotiating it. And I wanted to try and kind of pull it out a little bit and give them that space to say, well, I wouldn't do it like that, or why not do it like this, or whatever. You know? So that was very amicable and a very useful discussion to be having. I think for both sides, certainly, definitely for me. Week four was another little short one, a little bit about filter bubbles. Um, share your thoughts about filter bubbles, including whether Eli Pariser might have a bias of his own, or whether he is actually just being a really, really nice guy, letting you know that Google is tracking your every move and tailoring the content it gives you to your liking. Um, so trying to open up a space where we could be a little bit, kind of, practicing criticality again. And then we simply kind of guided the students through making the final assessed um, visual reflective thing. So a video, or if you're feeling not very kind of techy, it could be a PowerPoint or a Prezi, something like that. I mentioned that the Unit 3 stuff, um, there was a lot of stuff where it was relatively instrumentalist and non-negotiated, and there was stuff where they wanted people to be aware of things and kind of behave in employer-friendly ways. So one of the things that we were warning students about was, you know, kind of going to a, a job description and coming out of it and going, God, that was bloody awful, I don't know if I want to work for these people, and then therefore losing the job. Um, and alongside of that, one of the discussion points that I put in was about how far you can retain personal integrity if you feel pushed to only present an employer-friendly um, identity on social media. And I was hoping that with these kind of, with questions like this, with questions about filter bubbles and whether you think they're beneficial or not, I could get some, some, some discussion going in the forums and on the threads and that it would kind of perhaps spread out opinion, that there might be some kind of good dialogue going on. What actually tended to happen is that I think there's a degree of student kind of pleasing going on. So there are some fairly conventional answers coming in. Um, you know, so students are tending to say, in answer to this question here, you know, it was phrased as something like, can we maintain integrity whilst being um, presenting an employer-friendly image of ourselves? And they were all kind of going, yeah, yeah, I think I can do this. Because the course leader wants me to say, oh, look, I have multiple identities. And the careers person wants me to say, yes, I can present an employer-friendly. So they were kind of running through, or bending over backwards and going through all these hoops to tell us what we wanted to hear, or what they thought we wanted to hear. So there was somewhat less kind of breaking out into critical mode than I had hoped. There was, um, Leslie's written a paper some years ago um, 
with Bruce McFarlane, sorry, this is on the performance of re re uh, reflectivity, especially amongst people taking MA HEP courses or a PGC higher education course. And the idea that doing something reflective is a sort of uber discourse that everybody from anywhere in the university can just tap into and perform. And it's, kind of, it's subtitled Enacting the Penitent Self. And I, seriously, if you haven't read it, you need to read this. Because it is about the performance of reflectivity without any integrity. Is that fair enough? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's also very funny. <coughs> and I wonder if that is what my students are doing to an extent on this course. They are performing criticality without actually occupying it. So that is something that I need to take away. Have I created a coercive programme that I am kind of inflicting on students and actually probably making them feel less safe? It's like telling someone, be more critical. You know, what do I need to do to actually scaffold a genuine development of criticality? So I need a better model. I need a model that allows students to safely be subversive, if you want to put it that way. What will be interesting is how I can learn to design that. Because going back to roles and legitimacy and the kind of expectations you have, um, it's very difficult for me to gain access to my institution's MA in higher education practice. Um, it, is, it has not been encouraged amongst library staff to take this course because we are support staff, we are teaching support, therefore we should be in the library and we should be supporting people in their teaching without potentially doing it ourselves complicated thing to negotiate. That was your whistle-stop tour through the course that kind of set me on <coughs> this conversation around digital literacies and a conversation around kind of where I stand within learning or learning support, all the things I've been talking about. As a sort of, as a result of having designed this course, which has been successful, we've run it twice a year for the last couple of years, it's met our success criteria, students do sign up to it, they do say in their final um, reflections that they're not asked to do a reflection about their experience of the course as such, but some of them do choose to talk about that and they do say, I learned this thing and it did make me think differently, but again, how much of that is pleasing? The course then is kind of embedded at UEA, it's a thing that we do, but as a result of it, I had another conversation which was very satisfactory and fulfilling, where the head of our Centre for Technology Enhanced Learning rang me up and said, I've got somebody who runs the Paramedic Studies BSc course here in my office. She wants her students to do a MOOC in her final, their final year of the BSc Paramedics, and we want to put a course together that will support them as they take this MOOC. So I went, yay! Went over to the office, we had a couple of very low-key meetings, rather than a great big <clears throat> project structure with documentation and reporting and project boards and things like that. We had about three meetings and we designed this thing. So we came up with the idea of supported, assessed, independent learning. Bit of a mouthful. But these students are, as I say, third year paramedics. This is the first time this course has ever run at UEA. So this is the first lot of paramedics ever to be third year paramedics. And there was a gap in the course. So for those of you who know about health curricula, you know that there is a massive amount of content that's mandated by external bodies. And what I said on the first slide about people having to deliver, like, shed loads of subject content so that they don't get time to think about learning, well, that's not the case in health, actually. But it kind of ought to be, because there's so much stuff they have to tell their students and test them on and assess them constantly. And amazingly, the qualifying body said, here is a space in your third year, you can do whatever you like. 
and everybody got really excited. So we created a credit-bearing module <coughs> that lasted one semester, and in the course of that semester, so September till December, the students could take any MOOC they wanted, and we would have paid for them if they wanted to take a paid course. It could not be about clinical medicine, that was the only stipulation. The reason why was because what we wanted to do was have them look forward to their post-registration, post-qualification identity as a, a qualified paramedic. And what they have to do as part of that is prove to their health authority that they are actively engaging in CPD ongoingly. I nearly cried when I heard this. I was just like, this is the most enlightened thing I've ever heard. So they have to show through a reflective portfolio ongoingly what they have done in the last year or two that's made them a better paramedic and why. And it can be anything. If they've learned French, how does that make them a better paramedic? So, one course, one module, happening over one semester, students can take any MOOC they want. So if you were all the students, you'd all be taking different MOOCs, they'd last different lengths of time, they start at different points in the module. What was needed was some way for them to step back and reflect on what they were learning as learners, what they were learning about themselves by doing the MOOC, not just from taking it and learning new subject content. We wanted to make some touch points where they could come back and talk to their cohort about how the learning was going. So what we created was kind of a very lightweight online frame, which was again hosted on Blackboard. And there was a set of content about an hour's worth for them to complete before they started their chosen MOOC. Then there was something that they would take at the midpoint, so they had to work out their own midpoint for, the, for their MOOC, and complete another about an hour's worth of work here. And then the final section was actually um, keyed around the oral presentation workshop, which was how this was going to be assessed. And that workshop was, tell us how what you've learned has made you a better paramedic. That was the topic. So not tell us what you've learned, but tell us about you and how you've developed. This is probably the most fun I've ever had. Because it was lightweight, because the discussions were lightweight, because I was part of a module team, and we were really agile. We could just go, let's talk to the students and see what hasn't worked for them. Let's do something. Let's put this on Blackboard. Let's try it out. We could move so quickly. It meant I could put in a whole bunch of my favourite kind of educational stuff. Like I was able to put Stephen Brookfield and critical incident questions into the middle one. So the whole centre section was based around what has been astonishing or surprising or exciting or alarming for you in the last week. Yeah. The very first one had stuff in it about how are you going to respond if the course you're about to take gives you information that challenges what you believe now? What will you do? How will it feel? So there was a lot of really kind of, there was a lot of stuff in there that was about reflective learning, developing as a learner, which is kind of what really switches me on. And I was able to give it full play. It was magnificent. And nobody said, well, what does that have to do with the library? Apart from one person, can you guess who? Your line manager. <laughs> <laughs> Your line manager. Strategic placement again. How do we negotiate a service building also providing this kind of learning to students that is not even subject content focused? That doesn't say, here are the resources for your subject, good librarian that says things like, how are you going to respond if this learning <coughs> challenges you as a person? 
Well, it's an ongoing conversation, and it's one that we still have to kind of proceed with. But it does make me think I have to work harder at finding ways to communicate with so many different groups of people. It's not a problem communicating with academic colleagues. It's a problem envisaged by my library colleagues that it might be a problem doing this kind of thing, as far as academics are concerned. Does that make sense? Everybody's worried about everybody else's feelings. And so we're all just so busy doing that that we're not getting on with making the learning, which is what would be really very nice. So I wanted to very briefly mention one more thing. And that was my kind of my current challenge. So after Digital Voyager kind of worked, um, the head of Information Services Directorate again said, OK, so for your next challenge, if you like, what we'd like is for you to make an online induction for the library that every student has access to. So I've been talking a lot about me and how I think and my idea of pedagogy and student support. So how do you think I feel about the word induction? Do you think I like it? So I kind of went, oh God, how am I going to reframe this so that I can make this meaningful? Okay, let's talk about how do we create a meaningful, active and engaging library induction in the element that supports the transition to HE. So let's move this conversation straight away into the realm of Tinto, into the realm of access without support is not opportunity, into the realm of identity again. How do we support our students? Becoming students and becoming able to compass that identity. When they're in their first week of term, they don't know where the laundrette is, they don't know where the lecture room is. The last thing that they really need is a librarian going, so it's really important that you use our resources and not Google. You know where I'm coming from. So this is still in development this online induction. But again, what I found myself doing was a lot of communication around what the pedagogy should be like and what the approach should be like. So I did um, a lot of talking to committees and talking at Learning and Teaching Day again about you know, what it feels like when you enter a labyrinth where you really cannot see where you're going, where you have no idea where the center is. And there's all this scary stuff, kind of coming around corners, I love this picture anyway, all this scary sort of minotaur-like stuff coming around corners at you. My favourite one is one of my colleagues, who as a first year and a second year, and into her third year as an undergraduate, great student, model student, did all the reading, didn't realise she was meant to do anything else, didn't realise she was meant to have an opinion about what she'd read, because no one had ever told her that. Yeah. So part of what I want this to do is, yes, let's look at UEA's commitment to enhanced induction transitions practices. But let's really sort of communicate to students that learning is different. University, it's not just more of the same. We shift the goalposts towards a different idea of learning from school, a different conception of information from the workplace, if that's where they've come from. We're looking for an active co-construction of learning. And let's, for God's sake, tell them that, rather <laughs> well, than letting them work that out for themselves. And let's work it in with, you can do this. You as a person, you are here, you can, it may feel odd in your first few weeks, it will be a challenge to build this identity, but you can build it. Yeah. By this point, in terms of the conversations I was having, I was feeling a lot bolder. I felt more confident that I could speak to both academic colleagues and services colleagues within ISD and talk about kind of abstruse theoretical stuff like Tinto 
um, and say to people, look, this is how I think this should be. And it's not going to be as simple as putting up an MCQ or another nice little quiz or whatever like that. So I was able to go to Learning and Teaching Day and say, this is not what we want from your engagement as schools, as um, faculties. We really don't want you to be saying to your students, oh, the library's made some videos, go away, watch them in your spare time. So that was an actual slide I used with a great big no thanks. And bless them, they did laugh. So I feel better about having conversations like this. If we're going to create a kind of integrated multimodal library induction, which is not a very catchy title, but is basically what we're trying to do. Integrated with school provision, um, aligned with discipline knowledge and practices so that students can start kind of developing the identity as <coughs> a student of biology, a student of midwifery, a student of whatever. Um, making it multimodal so that it's not about going away and consuming digital content in your spare time like it's some kind of remedial activity. It's actually integrated with what you do in your school when you arrive. And hopefully lending itself to kind of blended delivery with perhaps group working in the first weeks of term so that you're doing this as part of your school induction and you get kind of physical tasks, maybe walking around the campus, maybe even going and borrowing a book off study skills, you know, reading this, something like that, but with a digital component. So that hits the kind of digital literacies remit and hopefully it also answers the need to make that shift from induction which I'm perhaps unfairly characterising as quite a simplistic approach of telling people what they need to know, to transition, which again is about supporting learners kind of coming to terms with themselves in this new identity, in this new environment, hopefully. This is what it looks like so far, just very briefly. So the key kind of pedagogic point, really, is that there's a difference between driving the library and learning literacies. So I wanted to make sure this was not about kind of using a library building. So I've made something called the Reading Trail, which is tied in with an online reading list and has all the stuff that about, you know, there's a different kind of use to a journal <coughs> article and there is to a book and they work in different contexts and I might use them for different things. The standard kind of stuff that librarians often talk about, but also quite a lot about academic language and discourse and why it's different and stuff about strategies for reading and reading critically such that you know you have to take up a standpoint, that it's not enough to just read the text and show up to the seminar. You're actually going to be asked what you think about it and to develop a kind of comparative critical viewpoint. But this is where, when I brought this to my colleagues' attention, one of the many committees that I showed it to, um, somebody really helpfully said, you should put in loads of videos because students love videos. And I went, yay, thanks. <laughs> is one of those conversations where you have to let go of your kind of, not values, but you have to compassionately let go of all of the stuff that you're yelling about, that the pedagogy really matters, not the technology, and appreciate that somebody is trying to be helpful. I have views on videos as a passive mode of consumption in exactly the same way that a lecture is a passive mode of consumption. Because it's digital, it doesn't mean the student's doing anything else. Generally, as Morta boys would have it, you are just watching the video. The student is not constructing knowledge any differently. Okay? I want much more activity, much more engagement, much more embodiedness in my courses. So I did think it was kind of ironically funny when someone said, well, students love videos, like, you know, it's just a homogeneous mass. 
They all love videos. They all use them the same way. But I have never gotten so far in my conversations before. It is still a privilege for me to be able to go and talk to high-level committees in my university. Even if the response is, well, put in videos because students love videos. To have that conversation and to be able to take this vision of what we want to do with our online learning and say to people, it's not just that simple. This is important and it's important that we treat it with the complexity it deserves is actually something I'm really proud about. It's something I am pleased with. And it's a conversation that I hope is going to continue. So here am I negotiating my own labyrinth of role legitimacy um, with surprise appearances. You know, like unexpected people saying things like, are you sure you should be doing this? Um, it's a lot of fun being able to work under the radar when you can. You can't always. Um, so some of the time I have had to learn how to negotiate and how to get my message across and how to accommodate stakeholders' viewpoints, if you like, and where they're coming from, and how to use language like stakeholder viewpoints. But it's been a lot of fun. So, I hope that it wasn't a disappointment that I didn't talk about how to make videos. <laughs> and I hope it's been interesting, and no one, <laughs> no one wrestled me to the ground to, um, to say anything, so please talk to me now. Please give me questions, thoughts, recriminations, anything you like. I'll always take you around. Oh, okay. <laughs>